that's coming up every year it happens so this coming Wednesday the 17th that uh, is commemorative of the capture of Jerusalem back in ancient times and uh, it was brought forward in an end time prophecy in Zechariah uh, and God indicates there that we should be keeping those fasts <clears throat> I've explained this I guess many times as the fasts come around but uh, the church, which is the modern Jerusalem, is certainly in captivity of Satan and the world and wrong ways of thinking and doing. So it's not just a commemoration that the Jews might keep of the past. It's something that we do today because of the present condition of the church and how it was led off into Babylon. If you want to go back and review Zechariah 5, how two unclean birds took the church uh, and set it on its base in Babylon. And that's exactly what the Tkachas did and basically destroyed worldwide, and now its splinters are still around. But uh, part of the prophecy that God said would happen, and we need to be praying and fasting and asking that God... Uh, create the gathering that should occur fairly soon. <clears throat> there is one group right now that's claiming that the gathering will start the beginning of August, about the 7th or 8th, I think, whenever the Jewish calendar says the sixth month begins, based on Haggai. But uh, unfortunately, they don't understand a great deal of what the scriptures say, so it'll be interesting to see whether or how that comes about. Uh, it could be uh, a total failure or it could be a resounding success but still not have God's blessing because it doesn't fit the parameters of the Bible. So we'll see what happens. But uh, attempts are made here and there to try to reunite the church. And the remnant is not going to be anywhere what some people think it might be. Uh, the Bible makes it very clear in Isaiah 6 and other places that it will only be about a 10% and even slightly less than that. So, interesting times we are living in. Uh, I might as well go ahead and mention that Friday, August the 16th, if you want to make a note, is the fast of the fifth month. Friday, August 16th. <coughs> that, <coughs> that was because of the burning of the temple. And, of course, the same thing really applies to that as does uh, to the destruction or capture of Jerusalem. Uh, the temple also was defiled and burned, just as the temple of God's Spirit, the church, uh, has been defiled and burned in these times. So, these two fasts coming together have quite a little meaning for you and me and anyone who is a part of the church of God. <coughs> Now today I want to get into the book of 1 John. Uh, we have been recently through James and then Peter and now John. Uh, and these were arranged by Luke, I think on purpose. He was aware of Paul saying that there's faith, hope, and love. And uh, these are uh, 
arranged in that order. James on faith, Peter on hope, and now John on love. So he put them in the same order <coughs> that Paul had put those three qualities. And Paul then said, of course, that love is the greatest of the three. It is not faith that will sustain us in that sense throughout eternity, but the love of God, which will become a part of our personality, our natural way of thinking, and that is what will keep the kingdom of God cohesive throughout the rest of eternity. It had one major disruption when an individual had more love for self than love for God. And we know that is Satan's rebellion today. <clears throat> God wants to prevent that, and that's why he puts us through so much here before he confers immortality and everlasting life on us. Because one rebellion in the universe was plenty, and one too many. And he does not want that to happen again. Now John begins this book by addressing no one, which is kind of interesting. He kind of opened his main gospel, the, one of the, the book of John, which is one of the four gospels, the same way. He just starts writing, where he said, There in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, speaking of Christ. He'll mention the Word here again as well as we get into it. Uh, the word mean, meaning Christ. And that's defined in the book of John as well. So he just starts writing, and then of course it becomes obvious in the context that he's talking to his little children at the beginning of verse 2, or the, the members of the church. Uh, he was, at the time he wrote this, well into his 90s, and uh, I guess anyone was a little child to him at that age, uh, but that's the way he wrote. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> let's get into it. Uh, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled of the word of life. So he's speaking here clearly of the one we now call Emmanuel or Jesus in that day. Uh, he was there at the very beginning <clears throat> of the start of the New Testament church. And that's the beginning he's talking about here. He's not talking about Genesis 1-1, obviously. He's talking about the beginnings of the New Testament, <clears throat> when Christ was here on the earth, and the men that uh, were with John, disciples of Christ who became apostles. And we know that John tends to speak in the third person. Uh, you'll see that a little later on here. Uh, and when he spoke of the one whom Jesus loved, uh, he did not name himself. Uh, I'm the guy Jesus loved uh, was not the way he put it, but one that he did. So he was not a person given to bragging or putting himself forward. Uh, well, there were times when they were all still unconverted and carnal, and he was one of the sons of thunder that wanted to destroy people. Uh, and that's quite, kind of interesting, isn't it? <clears throat> because of all the books in the Bible, perhaps the Apostle John, both in his Gospel and in these three short books at the, toward the end of the Bible, 
Uh, he has more content about the love of God than any other books in the Bible. And yet, a part of his, as loving and as kind as he was, yet he had a side of his personality where Christ called him one of the sons of thunder. And I think it is important, I mentioned this briefly in Bible study, but I, and I didn't want to get into it, but we probably will before this uh, dissertation is finished, whether today or later, in the books, three, three little books of John, <clears throat> that the love of God covers a wide gamut of things. It's a many-faceted diamond, if you will. God is love, and everything he does is about love and embodies love. And yet that love comes in many, many different ways. And I think that it's good to get into that and understand the types of love he shows. We tend to think, perhaps in Protestant terms, of God just being soft and gushy and nice all the time. But if you read through the whole Bible and see the way God reacts in various ways, it isn't always that way at all. And yet, he is the perfect embodiment of love. Uh, it defines him. He defines it. He is all about it. And it never departs from him, even at his angriest. And we have to understand that. So there is a wide panoply of human emotions that we can have, and they are not always wrong if they are done with the right motive in mind. In other words, there is a scripture that says, Be you angry and sin not. <clears throat> so anger does not always constitute sin. It depends on the type of anger, the purpose of the anger, how it is used, and what it achieves. Now, if it's just anger because of human frustration at someone for something, then it can be sin very easily. But God can show anger and at the same time be showing great love. For instance, Hebrews 12. God chastens every son whom he loves. Now, God has scattered and divided the church and chastened all his sons, all of us. And yet he is doing it in love that that which was crooked might be made straight. And that which was lame or halting and could not walk properly, spiritual walk, should be straightened out and healed and made well so that we become spiritually operative and able to move around and do the things God would have us do. So even in chastening, which hurts, does it not? We have all been hurt very badly by what has happened in the church. And there is still a great deal of confusion and frustration and anger and helplessness throughout the churches of God. But God did it on purpose for our good. And we have to understand that and react in the proper way to it instead of being discouraged or frustrated or giving up or being uh, angry forevermore or whatever. We can only look at self and say, 
How am I part of this? What did I do that helped cause it? <clears throat> and take our licking in the right spirit and attitude and make the changes that we need to make. And it applies to every last one of us. <clears throat> so there's just a, a brief thumbnail sketch of a couple of things whereby God can show love, and it may not seem very loving to us at the moment, but the fruit at the end of it is what counts. That's what matters. Now, God could not have just looked at the church and seen the Laodicean, apathetic mess we were in and poured out lots of blessings on us and said, it's okay, little dearies, uh, you're just fine. You won't be in my kingdom like you are, but that's okay, I'll bless you anyway. He couldn't do that. Can you see that? He couldn't be kind and gentle with us and get us where we need to be. So he had to show his type of love or that facet of his love in such a way that we might be corrected, straightened out, and get back on the path to righteousness in the kingdom of God. <clears throat> so we'll see that this apostle whom Christ apparently had more affection or that kind of love for than any of the other apostles, uh, also said some things pretty directly. We'll get into that directly. So, he lets us know at the very beginning here that he's going to be talking about Christ himself. Uh, verse 2, For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness, and show to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So he's saying, I'm writing what I'm writing as an eyewitness of Christ being on this earth, living his life, training the men who became apostles, which he was at this time. So this is a first-hand account. You can believe what I'm saying is what he was getting across. That which we have seen and heard declare we to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. So he says, we were with Christ, we have fellowship with him, and we want you to be able to share that same thing. Now what greater gift could he confer on people than that? In other words, God wants to share eternity with people who become God. And John is saying here, as an opening statement, that that which I am about to tell you can create eternal life in you, where you live forever under wonderful circumstances. So that's his object, that's his purpose. If you were giving a speech, this would be a, uh, what do we call it, specific purpose statement that John is making. I am writing this specifically, that you might have fellowship with the Father and the Son. Now, we're going to see that there are guidelines to fellowship or friendship with God. It has to be in a certain way. You know, as human beings, when we develop friendships here on the earth, 
we set our own parameters, basically, of what that friendship will consist of. Some people you are acquainted with, you're friendly with, perhaps, and it doesn't go any further than that. Others you see more uh, things of commonality, or things that you have in common, and you become friendlier with them, and then in some cases they become very, very close friends uh, to confide in, to deal with your difficulties and your problems with, and try to use them as a sounding board. You know what I mean. It can be either a passing acquaintance or it can be a very deep and abiding friendship. In our society today, we don't have many abiding friendships. I got to thinking some time back about friends that I have had through my lifetime. And you know, most of them were only three, four, five years in duration. Kids I went to school with in high school, Shortly thereafter, graduation came and boom, gone every other direction. And those in the classes behind, they were just gone. Most of them I never even saw again. Then when I got in college, uh, there were people there who were ahead of me as a freshman, and they were gone the next year, the year after. Some of, most of them I never saw again, unless it might be at ministerial conferences, maybe in January is the only time you'd see them. And you could develop some pretty close bonds in four years with your own classmates and perhaps those who came in after you. But come graduation time, away they went. So that was at best a four-year friendship, and then it just ended. They're just gone. And then through my life, at least, yours may not have been quite as topsy-turvy, but about every three, four, five years, ministers got transferred. So you just be getting to know people well in an area, and then suddenly you're packing your bags and headed somewhere else. And you left those behind. Maybe a very few that you were close to, you kind of kept tabs on through the years, but life gets busy and they just go away. So you, you can't think back, unless you're one of those families that everybody lived close together, as I did when we were kids, and grew up with my cousins and both sets of grandparents within walking distance on the farms. They're transitory. He's talking about here developing a friendship and fellowship that will last eternally. And for us, who become part of the Bride of Christ, if we qualify to be there, that's 144,000 close friends that will remain friends forevermore. We'll work together, dwell together, with plenty of elbow room, by the way, for eternity. The holy city is about 1,500 miles cubed, or pyramid, depending. And if you only have about 144,000 inhabitants there, that's a lot of elbow room. Well, plus angels and so on, but I mean in terms of the amount of people. Uh, that goes from about the Mississippi River to the West Coast and from somewhere down in Mexico to Canada <coughs> with only 144,000 plus two, uh, the Father and the Son, and then the angels about. So plenty of elbow room. God likes that. He doesn't like us to build city to city and field to field. He wants people to have space. 
But that's another subject. But here we're talking about something that can last eternally. It's not transitory like things are today. So he said that you also may have fellowship with us, verse 3, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son that we call Emmanuel today. So the real fellowship that we're to be developing is with those two. It goes beyond the transitory uh, friendships we might have on this earth. Now God has called us together here, and hopefully we'll stay together, and hopefully we'll develop the kind of friendships that reflect godliness. That's what he put us here to do, to be witnesses that he is God. Now, God is love, and if we are to be his witnesses, then we must also have that kind of love. But we find human nature gets in the way, and for various reasons, people get uh, crossways with one another and have difficulties, and in some cases we can't stay together because the love of God does not transcend human error, human pettiness, human personality, human uh, emotions and anger and frustrations that simply people don't handle. And therefore, they are not demonstrating the love of God. Now, that has happened over the years, not only here, but all through the church, but it's happened here as well, and continues to happen to some degree or another. Now, we here today need to take some preventive measures so that that will not continue to happen. We need to comprehend the true love of God and what it covers and how it is manifested so that we might attain it and have fellowship with the Father and with His Son, Emmanuel. And we have seen a great deal over the last year that you cannot in any way, and John will confirm that as we go along through here, you cannot have a close relationship with the Father and the Son without also having close relationships with His children that He has called that we are to become a partial bride with. Now, the biggest blockage to that, of course, is Satan, who would love to pull us away from thinking like God, and secondarily, our human nature, which will also lead us astray. But let's face it. We are either going into the lake of fire because we do not develop the right kind of relationship with the Father and the Son as evidenced by our relationship with human beings. You cannot separate the two. If you think you have a love of God and you do not have a love of people, then John will tell you down here that you are a liar and the truth is not in you. Now, that's a big concept to grasp, because we think we have these feelings for God. 
but we don't have feelings for people. Now, we may for some people, but we can be very selective, can we not? So we decide who we will love and who we will not love. Now, the love of God does not allow that. We're only talking about human love there. When you talk about the love of God, He loves every human being who has ever existed or does exist. He gave His only begotten Son for the whole world. He didn't send Him here for the righteous, but for sinners. So God loves sinners. I don't take that wrongly and become a great sinner so God will love you more. That's not the way it is meant. God loves us in spite of our sin. He loves everyone on earth in spite of sin. Another facet of his personality is that the world had gotten so deeply into sin before Noah that he decided it would be best in love to destroy all mankind from the face of the earth. He would not want to continue a program that was going to produce people who were hateful and mean and murderous and adulterous and you name it. He couldn't have that. So in love, he was going to wipe everyone out. But he saw Noah that he was a righteous man. So for the sake of Noah, and Noah only, he saved eight people to begin the process over again. In other words, his love, the way he is as a being, is peace, happiness, joy, the fruit of the Spirit. That's the way he is. And that's the only kind of universe he will tolerate. So he started over with only eight. And now we have become so sinful again that in love he is going to destroy well over 90% of the population of the earth. Now Satan's playing along with that quite well because he wants to see the whole earth's population destroyed. And when God announced in Scripture, which Satan knows very well and can read, uh, he knows that the population of the earth is going to get down to apparently 100 million people by the time Christ returns to set up the kingdom of God. And he's doing his part to help dissolve the population or decimate it with his new world order and his kingdom. See, he holds out that this new world order is going to be a peaceful, wonderful place forevermore. And yet in his mind, since he's a liar, he is intent on destroying every last human being on earth. And if Christ did not intervene, that is indeed what would happen. So God loves us so much that he is going to allow the world to go through this so that it might be humbled and repent and turn to God and live according to his laws forever. Now that's agape, defined in the Greek as 
godly love as opposed to philios, human love, human affection. You see, it's easy for us with people we relate to to have philios or human feelings of kindness and love and emotion and friendliness. But that human love is highly limited because as human beings we will find people that are just simply distasteful to us or unlikable or obtuse or whatever. And our affection will not extend to them. So you see, we're very limited in terms of human affection and love. We love those who love us, if you will. And Christ said that. If somebody likes you, you tend to like them. If they don't like you, then you don't tend to like them. Now, that type of love is shown with children and mothers and fathers, family, blood family, and those that we might take into our family circle or friends. Now, God is far above and beyond that. And His agape attend, uh, extends, as I said, to everyone. He wants everyone. He's not willing that anyone should perish, but that all should have everlasting life. So He is not limited as we are. He can love sinners without loving sin. We tend to make a judgment if that person sins and they're a sinner and I don't have to like them. Now, you can, with God's love, love them and pray for them and hope that they change. But you do not have to have a close friendship with them. Let's understand that. If they have been called out of the world to be part of God's church, and yet they exhibit continual sin of some form, God says, don't have anything to do with them. Don't even eat with them. Now, Christ ate from time to time with the Pharisees who were outright sinners. And he understood their personalities. And yet they weren't a part of his church, were they? So he was there to set an example. He was there to teach them right things, whether they liked it or not. And I don't know whether he said it over dinner, but he said it to them very clearly that they were white and sepulchers and serpents and snakes and whited walls and filthy cups on the inside. So he spared nothing in discussing them to them. And he did it out of love in hopes that they would get the point and repent. Now, when we come into God's church, we're all supposed to be following God's ways. And yet, if someone is a habitual sinner in some form or another, it is God's choosing that we not have much to do with them, so that maybe they will change, overgrow, and be what they ought to be. In other words, if their sin, whatever it might be, shuts them off from the people, 
then maybe they will begin to change their attitudes. That's the way God says to do it. So he says, I'm writing this that you might have fellowship with the apostles and the church, but the greater fellowship was even with the Father and the Son. So he says, have fellowship with us, but truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Emmanuel. That's the greatest form of fellowship, is fellowshipping with them. How do we do that? By prayer, by study, by meditation, uh, by not eating with them, but fasting and not eating so that we might think more deeply about who sustains life where food comes from, where everything, the breath of life and air, come from. It's there to help us in our fellowship with God. Fasting is not fun. But God created fasting among people for our good. It's part of his love. It's part of his personality. It says when Christ is with us, we don't need to fast. But when he is away from us, and we need to draw close to a being that we cannot see, touch, or feel, then we need to fast in order to maintain the right kind of relationship. And these things, verse 4, write we to you that your joy may be full. If we could get our fellowship correct with mankind and then with the Father and Son, we would have joy. We are frustrated now because our relationship with the Father and the Son has been dysfunctional. We were not close to them in the way that they wish us to be. And it took a lot of the joy out of our lives. And then, as people, we became scattered as churches scattered. And that has not been fun either. What is fun and what is joyful is everybody living together in peace and harmony. That's in the Psalms. I can't quote the exact place right now. But that the brethren dwell together in unity and in harmony. Now, if we lack that, then we need to work on our fellowship with men and our fellowship with God. It's easy to say, I wish someone would change. I wish someone would be different. Isn't it? It's always the other person's fault, is it not? Or do we need to look at ourselves because you can't change anybody else. If there's something wrong with relationships, you are the one who has to take the bull by the horns, or the cow by the ears, I guess, and straighten it out and fix it, if at all possible, that our joy might be full. Now around here, our joy hasn't been full lately, has it? Because we've had some departing, we've had different attitudes of various kinds. What can we do about it? How can we fix it? What can I do? What can you do? 
instead of complaining about the way things are, get on our knees and do something about it. If you don't, if I don't, no one will. See what I mean? You can't fix anybody but yourself. You know what? We're going to have to live with church members, the bride of Christ, for all eternity. Now, there are some, you say, I hope they're on the other side of Jerusalem and I'm on this side. I'm telling you, it won't work that way. (laughs) You won't be able to get enough distance. Because as God transformed, you'll be able to see all and know all, omniscient, omnipresent, all-seeing, all-hearing, everywhere. And the universe isn't big enough to get away to where we have to be. John's giving us the keys to that as we go on. We better listen to John because he was the last standing apostle and he summed it all up in these next three little books as to how we need to be and what we need to do. So that our joy may be full. It isn't really joyful in the church of God now. Well, who's going to fix it? We have to. He's going to bring a remnant together who are working in that direction to be his witnesses here at the end time. About 10% of the end is the message which we have heard of him and declare to you. I'm going to pass along, he says, what Christ told us and what you need to hear that your joy may be full. And declare to you that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. He is resplendent, shining, beautiful light. Maybe some of you saw the rainbows yesterday evening. Just two complete rainbows, which we do get around here occasionally. Bright and resplendent, full of color. A a bow that God gave us to tell us he would not flood the world again, at least with water. He's going to flood it with other stuff that's hazardous to life, but not with water. But he is total light and no darkness. He began his main gospel book using that same analogy about how God is light. Because if you want to see... Look at the light. In him is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him. Now there are a lot of people on this earth, brethren, who say they have fellowship with God. They believe that. They will tell you that. They go to church and rehearse that, whether it be a Protestant church or even the church of God. They think they have fellowship with God. They believe that He hears their prayers. And yet, one of God's direct statements is, God hears not sinners. He's going to define 
the conditions for friendship and fellowship with God. If we say we have fellowship him with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. So there apparently is a great danger that people will think everything's a-okay between me and God, just you and me, Lord, and things are not right. Just as we, to one degree or another, when we were all in one unified body, the church of God, thought everything was okay. We thought we were keeping the feasts and the holy days, and everything was good, and just before all the trouble started, we would get a plane ticket in the mail and run off to a place of safety, and everything would be hunky-dory. That was what we had in our minds. It didn't play out that way, did it? We thought we had proper fellowship with God, but apparently we did not. Now let's consider, I've brought this up before, that most everyone who came out of Worldwide Church of God and saw it shattered before their very eyes are trying to recreate it or restore it or remanufacture it, remanifest it essentially as it was. Hello, if we get it back to the way it was, it's going to get shattered again. We have to go somehow way above and beyond what we were when we sat in Worldwide Church of God prior to its breakup. Now, there is a challenge. God raises the bar. We have to reach the mark. He does not expect us to go on the way we were. Now, some of you are young and never really experienced what was, so maybe it's hard for you to comprehend what I'm trying to say. But the way you and I are today is not what we need to be. Proof? We're still splintering and scattering, us included. Therefore, something is lacking, and our joy is not full. We need to pinpoint it. We need to find out. We need to work on it. We need to fix it so that the hemorrhage stops. I said at the very beginning of this group, if we get close to God, if we stay close to God, we will succeed. If we go on about our business and let things slide and let things slip and lose our first love, lose our seeking God like you would seek gold or silver and treasure as Christ said we need to, that we would fail. Now we've had mixed results. So we're kind of trying, we're sort of working at it, but we're not where we need to be, obviously. 
Now, I know it gets hard to constantly be told we need to change, we need to grow. But brethren, I don't want us to fail. I don't want to see failure. I don't want to be failure. I want to live forever in the kingdom of God with eternal life and happiness and joy and no tears and no sorrow and no pain and no any of the above. And I want you to be there too. So we need to listen to what John says. Let's not be liars. He says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. So God is light, and there's no darkness in him. And he says, if we have the light of God, then we will have close fellowship with each other. We will have a deep concern and love for each other. The love of God is much bigger than the love of human beings as naturally manifested, if you will. Far above and beyond that. And we have to come to truly love other people as much as we love ourselves. Now we tend to take care of self very, very well. If we're hungry, we eat. If we're cold, we turn up the heat or put on more clothes. If we're hot, we turn on the air conditioner or whatever is needed to get to the temperature that we like. If we are bored, we do something to liven things up. We find ways to make ourselves as content as we possibly can in whatever ways we can. Do we have the same desire, the same motivation to make sure that everyone is well fed, is comfortable, is happy, that their needs are cared for? Are we attuned to that? Are we sensitive to that? Not nearly enough. Not nearly enough. We have not yet achieved loving our neighbor as ourselves. You don't have to love them more. If, they're, if you're comfortable at 70 degrees, then you don't have to be sure they're more comfortable than you, whatever that could mean. If you like your tummy full, then you need to want and hope that their tummy be full. That is one of the reasons that God is so solicitous of the widows and the orphans. Because they have things missing, they have needs, and it's easy for us to go on through life and not attend to those needs, whatever they might be. So he uses them as an example that is easier to see, perhaps, than it is somebody that's alert and alive and lively and, and doing. But God would have everyone 
with a tummy full, and yet the world has people starving to death by the millions as we speak. Now, he is going to show his love by providing in the millennium that everyone can easily attain the things they need to have comfort. Meanwhile, he's not. The whole world is not working spiritually, okay? Most of the world is working against God on, in spiritual terms, doing nothing spiritually. So God is not feeding them spiritually. See, that's the principle of Thessalonians, where Paul said, if you don't work, you don't eat. Another facet of God's personality. Human beings like to be full. They like to be comfortable. And yet God said, if somebody doesn't work, you should not feed them. Therefore, if you do not feed them, maybe they will learn to work for themselves. Maybe they will learn to feed themselves. Now, if you work and feed yourself... They're supposed to work and feed themselves. And you are disobeying God. You are going against God's love if you take care of their needs when they are unwilling to truly take care of themselves. Okay? That is one of the other facets of God's love. He wants everyone to be productive and take care of their needs. And if they don't, we are not to take care of their needs for them, lest they remain unproductive for whatever reasons. We're not to do that. So the love of God, if you have the love of God, means you look out for people, you take care for them. If they're doing the best they can and fall short, then we are there to help them. But if they're doing nothing or virtually nothing, then we are not to help them at all so that they might learn. If you work, you eat. If you don't work, you don't eat. That's God's love. Now to some, that might sound harsh. But that's the Word of God. You see, the love of God has many, many facets, many sides. Now, you're not feeding that person because you hate them. You're not feeding them because you love them. You want them to learn to take care of themselves, which is what God wants us all to do. He gave us a body. He gave us a mind. And He told us to be good stewards of those. And if someone is not, for whatever reasons, laziness, uncaring, unmotivated, or whatever, to take care of themselves, God says, don't do it because they need to learn to take care of themselves. They really need that. Then... With the proper character built, not only might they take care of themselves, they might be able to help take care of others. To be truly productive. The world, in its psychology, calls it enabling or enablement. 
where we take care of those who will not take care of themselves. He said, and God says, not to be enablers. Don't let them get away with it. Does that sound harsh? It's not. It's God's way. He wants everyone to become productive. That's his love. That's agape. Your filios gets in your way sometimes. Your emotions for someone you might be close to. But don't let human affection and human love stand in the way of God's love. Because there are many ramifications to it. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another. In other words, our fellowship will not be correct. It will not be godly unless we're walking in the light like God is. If you don't have God's love, then your human relationships are going to be affected. And your fellowship will not be good. <clears throat> so we... If we walk in the light, we'll have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Emmanuel, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what did Christ say? And I've quoted this a lot. If we forgive, he will forgive. If we do not forgive, he will not forgive. He made it absolutely clear. If we do not show mercy, he will not show mercy. So God is going to judge us based on how we treat one another in this life. This is real. This is us. This is what it's all about. If we can't learn to love one another now, God will not allow us to be in his kingdom. If we cannot learn to forgive, he will not forgive us. And that's what it says right here. We have fellowship one with another, and the blood of Emmanuel, his son, cleanses us from all sin. So it's a different way of saying, if our relationships on this earth with humans are right, then his blood will cover our sins. But if we're not walking in the light, then it will not. He goes on to say, verse 8, If we say that we have no sin... We deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Now, I think all here admit that we have sin. We all know that we fall short of the glory of God. In thought, in deed, in action, even some of the things that I've been talking about so far today, we realize we fall short, and there are sins of commission, that is, God tells us to do something and we don't do it. And there are sins of omission, which means, well, I guess what I said is omission. We omit or fail to do. Then there, there are things that we're told not to do that we do, and things we're told to do that we don't do, another way of putting it. Omission and commission are just... Big words. But there are many things in the Bible God tells us not to do that we tend to want to do. There are a lot of things in the Bible He tells us to do 
or not to do, and we don't want to do them. So we know sin resides within us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's another verse that says, Confess and forsake. Uh, is that Ephesians? Where is that? I forget exactly, but it doesn't really matter. Confess and forsake. Not to each other, but to God. It doesn't do any good to confess, I'm a sinner and I have sin, unless you intend to do something about it. So, confessing it is the first part of overcoming it and changing it. Again, psychologists tell us that until you admit something, you're not going to change it. In other words, you're in denial, is the word they use. If you deny you have a drinking problem, a smoking problem, a sex problem, a whatever problem it might be, uh, you're not going to overcome it. you just got to be honest with yourself and say, I have a problem with this, I need to do something about it. So, getting over the denial is the first step toward perhaps overcoming the problem, whatever it might be. But aren't we, to a great degree, always in denial? We like to think of ourselves as okay. But we have to hold up this mirror. The Word of God is light. And if we read it regularly, it will show us, if we're willing to listen, what it is that we need to change. I cannot pick this book up and turn to any place in it, brethren, that I don't see correction for me. It, it doesn't matter. Genesis to Revelation. Anytime I start reading the Bible, it hits me between the eyes. Can't help it. Because I'm just not everything it says to be. And we like to hide our eyes from that. We can't be discouraged all the time because we see so much sin in ourselves. We just have to recognize that it's our nature. And Satan plays on our nature. And therefore, we have a fight on our hands to bring every thought into the captivity of Christ. It's not easy. Thankfully, we have that forgiveness there. If we admit to God, I have this problem, that problem, another problem, and call out for help, for strength, for courage, for power, even to remove the wrong desires that we sometimes have, to be holy. It's not easy. And some of our wants and desires are natural desires, like food. Food is a natural desire. But desiring the wrong foods or too much food or any abuse of food becomes sin. Because it is not just stewardship of our bodies. There's nothing wrong with alcohol. God says we can drink alcohol. And then it can be a source of comfort or a source of relaxation or that type of thing. And yet, we might have a wrong desire for too much alcohol. 
So God says, temperate and be moderate in all things. Don't drink too much. So even something that is natural, that is okay for us, has to be controlled in a right way. And there are some things, if you're married, are natural and right and good. But if you're not married, any abuse or misuse of those is a wrong thing. So there's some natural desires that have to be controlled and handled in a right way until conditions are such that those desires can be put into proper use. And that becomes a nightmare of a problem, does it not? So difficult to keep ourselves on the straight and narrow in the way that we ought to walk. Some things are unnatural and wrong, period. Other things are natural and right under the right conditions. But if those conditions don't exist, then we have to be very careful how we think and act. Doesn't come easy by any means. So we confess our desires, our needs, our hopes, our dreams, our sins before God and ask for help. And know that He'll forgive us and cleanse the unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Now, we all know, as I said, that we do sin. But do we live a life of sin? Do we allow things to just continue on and on without any effort to change them, to make things different, to make things right? That's the key. We have to be working in the right direction. Any of those things I named, plus a plethora of other things that we might have problems with, we need to be working on, not just giving up and saying, well, that's just the way I am. They even had a song in, among Protestants, Take me as I am, Lord. God doesn't want you as you am. He wants us to be different. He wants us to be working on it. He doesn't say that we will be perfect by the time we die or Christ returns and we're changed. But he says to all seven of the churches, no matter what their state, good, bad, or indifferent, if you read all seven there in Revelation 2 and 3, he has various things to say about them. And even Philadelphia, which we like, everybody likes to say they are because it doesn't mention any of their problems. Even to that one, it says overcome. To him that overcomes will I grant to sit with me in my throne. So even though he doesn't enumerate specific sins, obviously there's got to be something to overcome or he wouldn't tell them to overcome. So maybe they are not so glaringly obvious... But they have to be searched out and found out and overcome. So, it's one thing to say, sure, I fail, I sin. But it's another thing entirely to look at it and be honest and ruthless with yourself, not others. And say, this is indeed a problem that I need to address and then work at changing it and overcoming. It is that effort. 
even though we might not fully accomplish it, we need to be working toward it as much as we possibly can. This polluted, filthy world we have around us, people sometimes just sort of say, well, everything in the store is bad, so I guess it doesn't matter. I'll just get what I want or something to that effect. Now, is that a godly attitude? No, it is not. God expects us to find, if there is any way to do it, the very best that is available and only eat those things that are actually good for our bodies. And even if the best we find is polluted in some form or another, and it probably will be, we still need to be working at doing the best we can for our bodies that are made in the image of God and take proper care of them, not just blow it off and say, oh well, everything's bad anyway, so what difference does it make? It makes a big difference in the way God looks at us. Are we trying in every facet of life to get things as good and as right and as wholesome and as pure as we can? That's what he would have us to do. To be good stewards of our bodies and minds and not allow anything in our bodies and minds that pollute, if at all possible, to prevent. That's what he means when he says confess our sins, be honest with ourselves. Find out those things that would hold us back from doing things the best way we possibly can, given the conditions we're in. Paul and Peter did not visit the widows and orphans when they were in jail. Didn't do it. But I bet they prayed. Under the conditions they were in, they couldn't do some of the things God says do. But they could do as much as they could do under the circumstances. So we, in any circumstance in life no matter where we find ourselves, needed to be doing the very best we can to do things the way God would have them done. And that will promote overcoming. That will promote growth. To be headed the right direction, even though we might be lost in the forest, be trying to find the right direction. And God will account that as righteousness. So the love of God just in this brief thumbnail sketch, covers a wide variety of emotions and something that might seem arduous, difficult, wrong, bad, or enabling, or whatever, is actually under the umbrella of God's love. That that person might be improved and grow, and sometimes being nice and kind and gentle and sweet might promote that, but sometimes a kick in the rear will promote it more and is what is needed. So we have to fit the need with the action. And there is where we learn wisdom. Who needs what at what time? What is the best application of the love of God to that individual at the time? To get people 
to repent in the millennium and the world tomorrow, God is going to cause famine and pestilence and disease and people to even eat themselves, eat each other. That is what it is going to take to get rid of the self-righteousness and the self-direction and the self-centeredness and ultimately turn people to the point they're willing to get on their knees and serve the eternal God. So even these end-time horrible events come as a facet of the love of God because he wants to see those people live eternally in happiness and hope and love and to turn human beings around from the way our world is today cannot be accomplished with sweetness and kindness and gentleness. So his love has to include some pretty harsh realities. So we need to learn what to use when. There's where wisdom and self-control and love of the person comes in so that we apply the right blessing or punishment depending on the circumstance. Well, let's stop there for today.